Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Mocock flavoured podcast. This show sees the return of Hussein as we finally pick up our tattered, well thumbed copies of the final programme and cover off phases three and four. I'll keep this intro brief, as this is a long show even by our standards, but as I was doing a bit of editing on this, I was reminded on Twitter by Liam Burns that Moorcock wrote the novelisation of the Sex Pistols movie, The Rock and Roll Swindle. Mike being Mike, he did it as a job for hire, and turned it into a tangential Jerry Cornelius novel. And this got me to thinking about just how much Cornelius material there is out there, particularly if you include the Jerry Cornell spy pastiches, the numerous short stories and novellas, and the related books that sit outside of the core sequence of four, but were collected as the Cornelius calendar. Jerry Cornelius forms an entire subgenre of Moorcock on his own, and eventually will cover some or all of this, but blimey, it might take a while. Getting hooked up with Hussein again was a minor miracle, but we hope we've now broken the entropic back of all the hold-ups. As it happens, their tech issues did raise their ugly heads, so it's been a real beast to kick this show into shape, but here it is at last. Seven days short of a year after we covered phase two, and a whopping 19 months since we kicked this off with phase one. So Hussein is back in Darien Toms, replete with some fetching green tights and a buds of London cravat, as we finally dig into the final programme, phase three. And four. And we are back after quite some hiatus in Derry and Tom's with Hussein to finally cover the final programme, Phase 3. And funnily enough, when I was reading the final programme, Phase 3, I also noticed there's actually a little bit of Phase 4 at the end as well. So this is technically Phases 3 and 4 of the final programme. It is true, and I think, you know, what one of the things that happened was that when I, when I thought I'd finished Phase 3 and discovered there was a phase four and nearly died. Honestly, I was thinking, this is, I've read this so many times now, and um, <laughs> I think it was by, by the time I've kind of got to phase four, it was midnight. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's like trying to read stuff, met notes. I said phase four came about at midnight, and I thought, you know, I, I'm, I'm just going to skim read, because I'm, I know this is where it went all bit here yeah yeah i think it's fair to say that phase three starts to go a little bit trippy and then and then phase four it goes right off the reservation but fortunately phase four is only about four pages long (laughs) so that's yeah that's something of a bonus but anyway it's lovely to have you back i think it's it's actually well over a year since we did phase two and people have been barracking me saying when is the final program phase three coming on and when is hussein coming back yeah, it's kind of like it reminded me of um, you know how uh, academics uh, when they when they do a bit of research they sort of stretch out that piece of research to ten papers. I think that's what we've kind of done <laughs> with the final program. Yeah, um, we, we've really kind of dined off uh, this small piece of um, literature and really stretched it out over a number of years. And um, but here we are. Absolutely. I think we've done all right on this. And I'm just glancing at my 67 edition now, and it's uh, 160 pages long. So when you uh, when you remove the first few with uh, you know the copyrights and all that business, it's about 152 pages. So we've done quite well. Um, but by the time we've actually finished recording this, and I've edited it and put it out, it'll be much like uh, I discussed with Natasha when we did The Jew and the Skull, which Natasha described as a one-shit book, i.e. that you can you can read it in one go on the throne. 
And um, we'll have actually spent more time talking about this and the three podcasts once run together will probably be twice as long as it takes to actually read the book. I, I think what other people probably don't know is the number of attempts that we've actually try to get this last one done and for mm. one reason or another hasn't really happened so in trying to do that i think between both of us we've probably read the book more times we'd like to kind of um admit to and each time <laughs> we have certainly each time i've read it i've completely forgotten what i'd actually read about so i had to keep mm. going back to uh, rereading it and uh, i finally actually made some notes on the pc so i didn't actually lose them <laughs> yeah, the weird thing, as you mentioned, we, we've had a few uh, aborted attempts to try and do phase three, um, but you know, pandemics and various other things just keep on getting in the way. But I, th- I think at one point when I read the end, I had, I had something of a handle on it. I'm not saying I, I entirely had uh, an academic understanding of what Michael Moorcock intended from it all, but I thought I had a handle on it. And then the subsequent two times I've read it, I think I've just completely lost it. <laughs> I'm now just reading it going, what the fuck is this all about? I'm not sure. I don't think it was any kind of... Uh, I, 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 the more times I've kind of read it, it, it appears to me that I think um, he was going somewhere with it and at some point he just thought, sod this, I need to end this. <laughs> um, so I don't think there was a big plan behind it. I'm not sure we've ever discussed this when we've talked about Moorcock and his writing, and I know I've discussed it with um, other people on other bits, and I've definitely discussed it with Natasha, was that Moorcock had an approach to writing novels in the 60s. Write it in three parts, write it over three days, and take copious amounts of speed and, <laughs> and coffee to get through it. And and he would um, he would sit at a typewriter and bash pages out, and then pass them over to somebody or a friend of his to to kind of put together and um, I, I don't know if even if they were particularly proofread and then that that is what would basically emerge as as a, a novel in three parts generally of 140 to 160 pages and that actually covers a lot of his 60s and early 70s output particularly in terms of like the big characters like the big fantasy characters and Jerry Cornelius. And I do think, and we'll get into some of the details about phase three, I do think you do get a sense that by the time we get to phase three, um, the speed and caffeine and whatever else fugue state is starting to break down ever so slightly. And and it's just becoming, some parts of it are, I mean, any kind of writing is to some degree stream of consciousness, but I think the state of his consciousness when he's writing phase three possibly comes closer and closer and closer to the surface. Not that I'm saying it's not brilliant, because I think it is. I fucking love it, and it's a brilliant 60s cultural artefact of British science fiction. But when you kind of understand his his method, often when you get to the third part of a book, it can go one of two ways. And with The Jewel in the Skull, the quality plummets. (laughs) (laughs) In part three, in book three. Whereas in this one, it's not that the quality plummets, it's just that the concepts explode into something uh, quite unlike, well, certainly when I read it when I was 16 or 15, and quite unlike anything I'd ever read before, or probably since, in all honesty. Although there are more Jerry Cornelius novels, which in some ways do get even more um, uh, difficult to pass in terms of trying to make sense of what's going on. And... uh, which you'll discover if uh, if after this two-year experience of covering 160-page book, if you ever decide that you want to progress with the next novel, A Cure for Cancer. Well, I'm sure you'll rope me into it. So, um... <laughs> well, yeah, I'll do my best. I'll do my best to convince you, that's for sure. 
Right, so I think probably what we should start off by doing is is recap what's gone before. So it all kicks off with uh, Jerry is pulled into a scheme to raid his father's chateau in France and find some microfilms, some secrets. And the uh, the Enterprise is led by a Miss Bruner, who's an interesting character, and she's surrounded herself by these financiers and businessmen who also want in to find out what Jerry Cornelius's father's secrets were, who was a, a Second World War spy and um, scientist. So they raid Jerry's father's uh, chateau. Jerry has an ulterior motive, which is that his sister Catherine is being kept in a, a, a drug-fueled slumber by his brother Frank. It's all a bit weird. Um, he has a relationship with Catherine, to cut a long story short. Uh, in his attempts to free her from Frank... His brother, he ends up killing her with his needle gun because he doesn't like powder-based firearms. And then things get a little bit weird after that point where he gets more entrenched into Miss Brunner's plan to create some kind of supercomputer. And they end up travelling to Lapland. We find out a little bit more about Miss Brunner, who appears to be some kind of... Um, she has some kind of ability to absorb her lovers. And uh, Jerry is constantly anxious that he might end up in uh, a similar position. And eventually they end up heading off to Lapland, where they try to discover some secrets at a Nazi submarine base. Uh, sorry, a World War II Nazi underground submarine stroke research base, all very spy thriller. And Jerry is also after the testament of an astronaut who experienced something and this testament must be really, really important to as, as a, a step on the way to achieving what they need to achieve. And eventually they find it. Miss Brunner is there with Marek, you know, scientist or Sherpa or Sherpa scientist. Yeah, I thought it was some kind of, um, was he a monk or something? Something like or, that, yeah. Uh, yeah, like yeah. Sherpa, monk, scientist, something or other. Yeah. And he becomes their new squeeze. And uh, they finally find the journal, and it is just several hundred pages of ha 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 ha. So Jerry, in a massive sulk, throws it over the board from his boat and rows away and leaves Marek and Miss Brunner stuck underground in this uh, this former Nazi base in Lapland. Have I missed anything, do you think? Does that pretty much sum it up? No, I'd, I'd forgotten half the stuff that you just mentioned from the previous one. So I, because yeah. I read straight from phase three. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's probably is 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 good for me as well. Yeah. In, in keeping all that in mind. Yeah. But as, as we go through those first two phases, there are certain things that happen where we get clues as to the nature of uh, of Jerry Cornelius and Miss Brunner's existences, and, and just little little tidbits about the world as well, and how the world is is decaying and um, undergoing change. We find that Jerry has some kind of heightened awareness of himself having different existences which is kind of drip fed through little bits of dialogue and that continues in first three and we found out that miss brunner always has a, a squeeze that might be male or female and they don't last too long before essentially their their clothes are found extremely neatly folded up on the bed where she was where they were last seen and uh, she'll say things like you know if if jerry says Where's Jenny? She says, oh, well, she's around, you know. So, yeah, Miss Brunner is a, a, an interesting character as well. And we find out a little bit more about Miss Brunner in Phase 3 as well. So let's uh, let's spin on, then, with Phase 3. Jerry rows away, returns to his helicopter, and, and eventually gets back to Britain via uh, Lumia, Hamburg, and Southampton. And 
on return to London, finds his energy levels are low. And this is quite a simple throwaway description. He's, he feels low on energy and he needs people around him. And he gets quite depressed. There's this vague suggestion, again, that Jerry um, relies on some kind of energy from other people. It could be dismissed as he just gets depressed when he's not shagging or taking pills or spending time with people. But there's also a suggestion there's maybe something a little bit more to it. And he prepares for a party. Now, there's a, a, a very good description of the party, there's a very good description of the guest lists, and this is something that is actually a recurring theme in the four core Jerry Cornelius novels, a big party on Ladbrook Grove, and this is, this is the first time we ever come across this. So it says, In London, he opened his townhouse. The hotel-sized building on Holland Park Avenue stood well back from the street and was surrounded by a high wall topped with electrified spikes. It was time, he decided, for a spot of exterior meditation. He would get a big party going and lose himself in it. With luck, it would help him to work a few things out. But first, he filled himself with sleeping pills and took to his bed to sleep a dreamless sleep for three days and nights. When he woke, his energy was low and people were even more urgently needed. After his bath, he dressed in a high-collared white Bastille-style linen shirt, a black terrelene cravat, black suede trousers and black doeskin jacket. From a wardrobe containing some fifteen of them, he took a black double-breasted car coat and laid it on the chest near the window. He pulled on a pair of black boots with low Cuban heels. He studied his pale features in the mirror that covered the far wall, brushed his hair and was satisfied. He was feeling very hungry and rather weak. He picked up the coat, took a new pair of gloves from the chest and left the dressing room. There were actually two dressing rooms, one containing clothes he probably would never bother to wear. And then... We get this uh, description of the house, this six-storey house full of gear that would support him basically through an apocalypse. It could almost be a castle with high walls and electric barbed wire, and um, it describes uh, a garage that could fill, that could take several double-decker buses, and it's full of drums of fuel. He's got uh, cold stores with um, masses and masses of um, carcasses, and he basically lives in his own castle, which it seems to be prepared for the apocalypse. See, I've mentioned this before, that one of the reasons why I think this book is incredible in in the sense of it being written so far in in the past and yet still for me feels very relevant. There's a a bit in there which says Jerry's taking a flight, uh, return flight home, but because it kind of got through to Lapland through illicit means, through a a, a copter, it, it takes the plane back and there's no visa stamp. Yeah. Years ago, a few years ago, we would have been like not really, you know, that that wouldn't have happened because you know, of, because of Brexit now, yeah, that becomes again relevant in that you know it's all of a sudden going into Europe, etc. You know, it, there's there's this thing about you know you can't just kind of expect people to just go willy nilly, etc. Yeah. You know, so that starts to become more relevant. The other thing that struck me was that when he does return home. And he goes to sleep for about three days straight. As you'd kind of mentioned that, you know, there's there's something about him which gives an indication whether he might be actually gaining energy from other people mm. or whether, he, you know, he just likes to be around people. But one thing is, is true is that usually when people are knackered, having a little bit of sleep will at least re-energise them. But for him, it doesn't happen like that. Mm. You know, he, he just is, is absolutely knackered still and that, and that might well be because he's you know depressed as as they um 
as they, as they talk, uh, as they mentioned, that he was is depressed. But he, he gives an indication that Jerry needs energy, but not from food. Yeah. And despite him being really hungry, and having a load of food in in the form of all loads of different carcasses, etc., in this massive mansion of his house, he prefers digestives yeah. and instant coffee. <laughs> yeah, he has a pot of instant coffee and a pack a packet of chocolate digestives. Yeah. He's got all this lavish food in his house, yeah, and that's what he goes for. Yeah, which again tells you that I'm not sure if 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 food is the source that gives him energy. So there's something supernatural about him, mm. which is, you know, which isn't this, you know, any other person would have been, um, you know, a, a little bit of food would have given them the energy they needed to then set off on their day, but yeah. you know. Not with him. But we, we get more and more indications in phase three. It's, it's, there's, there's like a slow burn in phases one and two that kind of describe or, or give some hints as to he's, he's not a regular guy. It really does become more and more apparent in phase yeah. three that there's a lot more going on. The other thing which I found, so whether this was by design or otherwise, one of the things we know about Jerry, and it's one of the things I actually do really love about this book, is that... Jerry's an extrovert, hmm. and today it's quite fashionable for people to read about personalities and and, and the different types of personalities and 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 how they kind of uh, gain energy from situations and 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 you know different contexts. But it's often said of, of extroverts that being around people that's that's how they'll kind of gain their energy. They like being around other people, hmm. and Jerry has that personality. You know, right from the off, you know, he is that, you know, the way he kind of dresses, the way he's, you know, that flamboyant look about him. Yeah. Um, the dickhead sort of charm that he kind of possesses, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's all kind of, not like I'm saying that all extra is a dickhead or anything like that, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm cleaning up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's, it, it's one of the most, honestly, one of the most, the things I really like about this book to think about whether it was by design or otherwise, you know, um, it, it for me seems so relevant to today that where we're starting to really um, where 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 personalities etc. was studies studied around that kind of yeah. uh, time, but it's so much more amplified in 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 today's world. You know, if if you kind of just paused and and thought about how Jerry behaves and and. And how he does receive his energy, it's completely aligned to his character, which is which is incredible to kind of have that foresight um, to have written about something like that. Jerry Cornelius is the second of the two characters that seem to be mainly a projection of Mocock himself, because one of them, his most famous character is Elric, the doomed albino. Jerry Cornelius has some similarities to, I think we'll mention in phase one, the situation with Catherine and Frank is very similar to the situation with Elric, his cousin and um, his male and female cousins, and, and the Dreaming City, the story is very, very similar to the first part of of uh, the final program, which in some ways is a retelling of it. But where Elric was kind of reflective of moody teenager Michael Moorcock, mm. Jerry Cornelius is seems to be very much a projection of Moorcock in his late twenties and early thirties. And when you see Moorcock interviewed, and, and shout out to Joe Banks for sending me a link to a, a, a an interview with Moorcock from the sixties on it's on the Savoy Channel on YouTube. And Moorcock is there in his crushed velvet jacket and his hipster moustache and little beard. And he's, he's um, wielding a cigarette as he speaks very slowly and deliberately about his opinions about things. 
one of the brilliant things is he absolutely craps on the doors <laughs> the band the doors and adds them to his list of things that he doesn't like alongside Tolkien and uh, John Pertwee as Doctor Who and, and and the cigarette is almost like an affectation you, you, you barely ever see him take a drag on it and I, I think Jerry Cornelius is very much that kind of outward projection of of, of how Moorcock felt it's, it's like his, it's like his, his super ego almost you know mm. and Moorcock um, himself, at the time, as was discussed a couple of times on, on, on the recent episodes, surrounded himself with artists. So Moorcock in the 60s was getting authors like J.G. Uh, Ballard and Brian Aldiss and people like that in print through being an editor on um, on a science fiction magazine, New Worlds. He was also surrounded himself with musicians. He was there from almost the very early on outset of um, a band like Hawkwind. He was writing music with them. He was always surrounded by people and and Hawkwind were taking huge amounts of acid and speed and, you know, Lemmy was part of Hawkwind in those days. The connection between Jerry Cornelius and that need to surround himself with people is very much a projection of, of Moorcock's almost innate need to surround himself with creative people and nurture them and and encourage them and not feed off them in the way that Jerry Cornelius does, but feed off them creatively and offer sustenance back in the opposite direction. Yeah. That's really, really interesting because one of the things that I think people um, struggle with is that having that awareness, it takes up people a really long time to have that awareness of themselves mm. as to, you know, what, what keeps them engaged with, you know, other people, what actually gives them energy, what uh, you know provides them with um, stimulus, etc. And clearly, he seems to have had that um, in 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 his uh, um, in in the fact that he kind of surrounded himself with other people. And 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 I think there's a part in in that. Just when he's uh, returned to London, he mentions something like uh, with Jerry Cornelius that he never felt comfortable unless he had fifteen miles of. Um, built-up area around himself which um i was talking to my wife about this this morning you know just because every time i'm kind of reading some of this 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 stuff will percolate in my head and um and i said to us this the younger me would have loved to be around places like london mm. but the older me now would happily leave all that behind and, and go somewhere and live in the sticks in a in a um in a little cottage yeah you know it's that kind of you know n- but the younger me wouldn't have really have had that sort of same sort of awareness of what actually is that I needed mm. because you know you, you you have this perception that certain things are not as cool as other things you know so I would have found myself kind of drifting more into the city and all that sort of stuff you know being a and maybe that's what I did need at that age you know but certainly not what I need now mm. um, but but for him to have that uh, insight into his own kind of like needs you know it, it it's it's um, I said it. It is it is amazing to, to for for people who kind of know know these things because it's we take it for granted that but everyone does know, mm. and the the more I kind of speak with people over the years, you know, we realize that a lot of people have, don't have that self awareness, and that's why one of the things that they really struggle with in terms of understanding, you know, they can't really articulate why they can why they might behave in certain situations the way they do. No, you're absolutely right. And and I was in a similar space, I think, when I was a teenager and probably in my early 20s, I never envisaged for a, a day that I wouldn't be um, in the heart of or on the fringes of a city centre and I would live there forever and I would be in the Welly Club in Hull every Friday and Saturday night dancing like a tit on the stage in my dead man's jacket that I got from Oxfam and, you know, 
and it's funny because when I think back, I, I, I surrounded myself, or I was surrounded with um, stoners and people who were in bands. Mm-hmm. I was never in a band myself, but my social group was always people who were stoned, and there was a lot of hallucinogenics around at the time as well. And and a lot of my friends were in bands. I, I could probably count on two hands. Um, I'd need more than two hands to count the number of bands that I was like tangentially involved in, just with through being friends with people like that and you know the Adelphi music club in Hull and was was a, a regular haunt for for all of these people and when you think back I, I think back to my those days of just being friends with people and you just think back to your mates but actually when you think back and look at it from that perspective it actually seems more um, powerful and exhilarating than than you just mundane memories allow it to be it's only when you can have had a conversation like this and think back to what you were up to and what you were doing where all of a sudden that takes on a little bit more energy. And I was I was only laughing with my mate Rich, the other night, hey, Rich, Rich Firth. Um, we were on just talking on WhatsApp about our absolute inability to stay up past midnight anymore. <laughs> and uh, and I just simply don't have the ability left in me. And I think it's because in our teens and early 20s, we used up our entire lifetime allowance <laughs> of staying up late. You know, sometimes staying up for two or three days straight. And uh, and I think, almost like a, a, a video game character, you only have a finite amount of charge <laughs> for that kind of thing. And uh, I, certainly, I certainly used it all up back in those days. So, yeah... Cornelius is, despite the fact that it's a little bit weird, he, he is this weird, this odd, um, narcissistic, flamboyant, extroverted character that is actually quite identifiable. Yeah. Mm. So, after he's uh, he's, he's got his his kit on, he decides to um, to go to a favourite drinking hall, the Blue Bar Tavern, and uh, and he gets his Toyota. He he eschews the Duesenberg on this occasion, and he gets in his little Toyota. Um, sports car and heads to the blue boar and says uh, in times of change the blue boar did not change the blue neon sign still glimmered outside the plastic trees on the way down to the cocktail bar still twittered with artificial bird song the plastic coat of arms still adorned the leather upholstered walls and the lighting was still low it was quiet and pleasantly vulgar and the cocktails were inexpensive a small pretty dark-haired girl brought jerry a woomera special milder than the name implied bourbon with ginger ale. A couple were sitting in the corner, and they paid little attention to Jerry or each other. Once or twice the man asked an abrupt question in German, and was answered abruptly. Jerry could rarely speak German. That's another one of those beautiful, beautiful little seeds that there's this sense of awareness about his nature, about how he can change at the drop of a pin, or that there are multiple versions of himself. Or, or is it a reflection on the feature of the world it inhabits, an implicit feature of the world it inhabits? But what it is, it's an implicit feature of the characters and the worlds that Michael Moorcock creates, in that they're always mutable and changeable, and anything is possible. It's a very, very subtle point. That, I mean, I picked up on that as a way that Jerry could really speak German. Uh, now, the thing about speaking languages is that yes you you know you it, it tends to be more of a binary thing you can either speak it or you can't and yes mm. you might be able to uh, you might forget certain you know i don't know verbs or the construct of the language is not something you you can master and then kind of forget <laughs> Do you know what I mean? mm. it, and 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 that's the subtlety with this in that you know you you get something here which is that 
that there's something again a little bit strange about him that you, you, you know to, to be able to somehow at some point be able to speak German and then not be able to speak German in other other, other times what what is that about is that a timeline thing you know mm. that in 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 some in uh, um in in some parallel universe he is able to speak but yeah it it, it it did strike me that it was a very strange kind of like thing to be to say that you know someone could rarely speak german it's it's a wonderful use of language it's yeah. it's it's brilliantly deliberate and yeah. vague and and can be interpreted in a number of different ways as as the jerry cornelius novels progress it becomes more and more obvious that there are just multiple versions of jerry cornelius because this this book has a fairly definitive conclusion in terms mm. of the existence of Jerry Cornelius, but over subsequent books, Jerry's just Jerry again. Frank's alive again, Catherine's alive again at times. We 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 meet his mother. After the conclusion of the fourth core novel, the condition of Muzak does give a really spectacularly brilliant explanation for all of this, which is in some ways simultaneously a little bit mundane but also brilliantly uh subversive which which i absolutely love but you know we'll probably get to that about 2035 so you know <laughs> sit tight for that one so after this he's, he picks up a custom-made guitar and then buys the entire stock from a coffee uh a coffee store all of their beans and he goes to various other places and everywhere he goes he tells people well don't worry there's a party on i may have bought, bought out all of your stock but just tell people to come down to the party and gives them his address and then we we kick off into this regular fixture of Jerry Cornelius novels, which is a Ladbroke Grove party. Yeah, I, I, you know when you said junk uh, rather than coffee, I, I, I did wonder whether is there is there like um, <laughs> I was thinking is, is the is, is the the coffee merchant uh, a drug dealer here or something? You know, I was thinking what what the heck is junk here? Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Please, That's exactly please, what he's referring to. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I was, I was, I was, because I mean, I've, I've, um, it's been a while, kind of, you know, to, to, uh, start, kind of, uh, is it because he'd gone to this, this, this coffee shop, <laughs> yeah, supposedly, you know, um, and then when you're reading it, at like, you know, a half hour before midnight, um, I said that even though I've read it so many times, um, there are, there are things that I'll kind of obviously have not picked up the first time I've read it, yeah, um, which, which is, you know. I think it's 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 a testament to how fast paced this book really is, but there's so many yeah. little subtleties that are actually dropped in um, as you're kind of reading it. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's uh, it's it's just one of many things in the book, isn't it? It's yeah. um, what amazes me often when I read books like this is is um, pops who gave me all these books, read these books, loved all these books, but round about the time where you know you, you're reading in the first couple of chapters of Phase One about how she falls into bed with Professor Hera. And there's yeah. nothing lascivious or um, no suggestion that it's there's anything wrong with it. All all the other references to um, all those other things which would have been you know pretty um, would have been considered transgressive in the 1960s. And e even during the the party chapter, Jerry falls into bed with Little Miss Dazzle um, and discovers Little Miss Dazzle's secret, which we we discovered in in Phase One, and it's just like oh. 
So yeah, it's it's just, but it's it's littered with these things, just yeah. a, a completely different attitude to things. And what really blows my mind is Pops was reading these books and really enjoying them and passing them down to me. But in the sixties, when this was written in the late sixties, that was around probably around about the same time Pops was declaring that he would never go in the White Hart Pub in Hull anymore because they'd got rid of the men only lounge, <laughs> <laughs> and women were being allowed into it. It's, it's baffling, really. But yeah, you're absolutely right. In the late sixties, with the such a vast amount of the content of this book would have raised every eyebrow in a in a, a room of a room of people. But it's interesting, isn't it, when you think about these things? Because Moorcock himself was being quite reactionary about certain things at these times as well, and certainly in the seventies with his with his um, you know writing about his opposition to comics like two thousand AD ten years after he, he published this, you know, and using his position in the National Union of Journalists or whatever it was to, to, to try and get certain things shut down that he didn't agree with. Or in the six, late 60s, referring to the Doors as... Of course, punk music wasn't a thing in the 60s, but he refers to the Doors as as um, worthless punk music that's, like, trying too hard. So everybody's got their... Everybody reacts to certain things in a different way, and even the most progressive people can be extraordinarily dismissive of stuff that doesn't fit their their agenda of what they're doing don't like, but that's you, that, that's just being a person, that's just being human, isn't it? Absolutely. We, we've all got a, you know, what we think is the right principles for a right sort of will, you know, and mm. um, and uh, so I suppose the, the kind of things that he kind of just throws in as matter of fact, you know, mm. without even um, giving it a, a second glance in the book, you know, it's just presented and it's moved on, you know. I wonder what it would have been like for other people reading that that kind of thing, mm. especially if you were of some kind of like I don't know if you had a conservative mindset at that time, because some of the stuff in here, if you've got a very conservative mindset even now in reading this stuff, you know w- w- would would be um, challenging to your to your kind of you know worldview. Mm. So in 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 that era, it 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 would have been fascinating to actually have have that you know, uh, fly on the wall kind of like, you know, view of what, what, what people, how people would have reacted to some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, That's why this kind of genre fiction can be so priceless and it's often dismissed as um, junk. But actually what, what you find in these things is the kind of themes and messages that you can't get away with in contemporary fiction at that precise moment in time or will be dismissed as, as out of order. At that precise yeah. time, but under the under the cover of a book like this, with a psychedelic Bob Haberfield cover, and you know on, on on the bookshelves next to all of the fantasy novels and all of the Frank Frazetta Conan books and everything else, it's just there. And the people who are reading these books at the time are the people who are really really receptive to this stuff, and this is where they find it. And on its you know it's on, on its most I suppose not necessarily basic level, but one of the reasons why. I don't know, Star Trek, the original series with Captain Kirk and all that lot was so popular is because they handled key themes that were relevant in society at the time and handled them through the prism of a spaceship and really, really um, often quite clumsy allegory. But it worked and enabled them to actually discuss these these things and actually give a really, really positive message about a future where people are colorblind where all where money doesn't exist, where you know, going off in Star Trek territory now, but but where the Federation there is no want, there is no yeah. need, um, and and it makes it all the more bizarre now, 
that the people who really object to series like, I don't know, Star Trek Discovery, because it's got a female black lead, are absolute hardcore, die-hard Star Trek fans who resist any form of change and really show the true colours when they go out on these like sort of bile-filled rants about how, in inverted commas, work <laughs> Star Trek is becoming. And it's absolutely baffling when you think... And you get the same thing with people criticising Doctor Who for being work, for having a female Doctor and, and a, a multi-ethnic group of companions. And these people are just fucking idiots. You know? I think what happens is one of the things that happens, I think generally, I think, is that people become resistant to change and they start seeing the world that, that was before in a utopian state, you know, whereas, yeah. you know, they thought about things in terms of what they did and and the and um, the the changes that they fought for. They, they almost kind of forget it once they've kind of reached the state that they thought was their utopia. Mm. And it's like, we no, we, that's it, kind of, we don't want to change it anymore. This is... This is this is this is the world that we wanted. We don't want any anything more. This this feels like it was it was right, you know. Mm. And people kind of forget that, you know, in in in, uh, in in doing that. So one of the things that I'd it's one of the things I really admired about my my old man um, towards the end uh, um, was that um, I, I think I might I don't know if I've told you this story about how um, uh, my my brother and my uh, my old man had a bit of a fallout um, that went to, I think, I think it, it was when, um, but I won't, I won't go into the details of it, it's irrelevant really, but they had, they had a bit of a, the, the fallout and uh, I, I uh, got roped into the kind of try and mediate between them. So I went along to try and mediate in this, um, it, it wasn't a major conflict or like that, but it was, it was something that was, it, it, it was something that can continue to linger so, um, yes. so there I went um, in my best diplomatic kind of um, stance, you know, and trying to get this resolved. And within that, I got caught in a crossfire. Mm. And um, the old man turned to me and said, he says, and, and, and your kids as well, you know, they don't come over and they don't, but when, when you come over to ours, they don't come and like, you know, say hello to me. They don't come and say assalamu alaikum, which is the, you know, is the Arabic term for, you know, peace be upon you, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. It's a, it's a kind of hello greeting, I guess. And, um, you know, they don't come and shake my hand and, you know, they don't do all of that. And uh, I just started laughing, you know, I was like, I says, dad, you know, I said, all I want their kids, you know, just play with them, you know, and they'll mm-hmm. automatically start doing that kind of thing, you know. Me, me old man just nodded his head and um and what what he did after that was he didn't he didn't admit that you know i had a point or anything he just kind of nodded his head and um and the next few weeks he was completely transformed the way he behaved around the kids you know he, he started chasing you know much to annoyance of my mum. you know he, he'd be like you know playing chasing with them and all of that kind of stuff you know and he was a kid you know mm. he was a kid with them Mm-hmm. And it really made me smile. But the thing I took away from it was that there's something about as you get older, to be open enough to un- to want to understand a generation that coming after you when you're supposed to be the wise one, mm-hmm. when you're supposed to be the person <laughs> who seems to have kind of said that this is what the world should be like, and they're supposed to seek your counsel, and a generation comes along and says actually. What if you did that? So to, to to have the strength to actually say, you know what, I really don't, you know, maybe it is me that needs to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's there's something about that where 
generations that have kind of got used to certain things, they kind of end up canonizing things in a way that doesn't allow them to continue to develop. And um, it's something just to kind of, I know that I've put a, you know, a footnote in my kind of like mind to just continue to do that, you know, mm. just to, as my kids grow older, to not to kind of expect to see the world through a lens that, you know, is somehow rose-tinted and perfect, you know? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I kind of went on a bit of a monologue there. No, no. What what you said is, is really powerful. And I think as as we all get older, it's like it's... it's really simple to reduce it to saying you can go one of two ways. Um, but actually, you go one of two ways on a million different topics, on a million different branching angles, and and you do essentially become you become a different person. I'm, I'm a totally different person to, to what I was 25 years ago. You'd hope so. Yeah. Because otherwise... It's growth, it was, isn't it? Was it? Ali said, I think that was Muhammad Ali said, yeah. if you're the same person as you were 25 years previously then, you know, you've not grown. Yeah, yeah. But one thing, I, the one re- way I have changed massively is there's no way I could tolerate a Jerry Cornelius party anymore. <laughs> I'm, I, even at the age of 18 or 19, I might have struggled. And uh, let's let's get down into uh, into Jerry Cornelius's party a little bit. So and I'm, I'm just going to read it out because this is essentially uh, the guest list. Although I, I will point out that the guest list is subtly different in this version to the 1967 edition. Now, I've not been reading from the 67 edition because I don't want it to fall to bits. And, and I've had a bit of a problem. Phil and I were covering a book called City of the Beast, a.k.a. Warriors of Mars, and they're books that he wrote when he was like 18, 19. And they're, as, as, part, as, as the Moorcock um, canon goes, they're, they're not particularly highly regarded. They're Ed, Edgar Rice Burroughs pastiches. Anyway, long story short, I had two copies of it. I got 30 pages into the first one and the spine disintegrated and it fell to bits because it's a really, really old edition. And then I had a much more recent edition from probably the late 90s. And I got the next 30 pages into that and the cover fell off and the spine fell to bits. So I seem to be cursed at the moment with, if I try and read any of my older editions, they're just they're just falling to bits. So I've been reading this uh, Titan Books edition, which, uh, let me just check out the... Uh, which the uh, this is, I think, the one that I've got on the Kindle. That's the one that you've got on the Kindle, yeah. So, so this is from 2016, and there are quite a few subtle differences, and some of them are in the guest list, but I'll, I'll talk about some of the specific differences, you know, not all of them, just bits and bobs when, when we come across them. So... The party started. The man, the man with a capital M, the man and a couple of friends were the first arrivals. I thought I'd avail myself of the facilities, said the man, taking off his heavy raincoat. He wore a high-collared green corduroy jacket and hamlet tights. He looked a wow. (laughs) The flood was on, and half-suspicious guests got the mood of the place before they let themselves relax. There were Turkish and Persian lesbians with huge hoary eyes like those of sad neutered cats. French tailors, German musicians, Jewish martyrs, a fire eater from Suffolk, a barbershop quartet from Britain's remaining American base, the Columbia Club in Lancaster Gate, two fat prudes, Hans Smith of Hampstead, last of the left-wing intellectuals, the microfilm mind, shades, 14 dealers in the same antique from Portobello Road, their faces sagging under the weight of their own self-deception, a jobless Polish-French polisher, brought by one of the dealers. A pop group called The Deep Fix. A pop group called Le Coq Sucre. 
a tall negro, a hunchback veterinarian named Marcus, the Swedish girl and a juicy youngster, three journalists who had just finished spending their golden handshakes, little Miss Dazzle, whom one of them had discovered in Elvino's looking for Mr Cruikshank, an Irishman called Poodles, the literary editor of the Oxford Mail and his sister, 27 members of the special branch, a heterosexual, <laughs> two small children, the late great Charlie Parker, just in from Mexico under his alias Alan Bird. He had been cleaning up for years. A morose psychiatrist from Regent's Park named Harper. A great many physicists, astrologers, geographers, mathematicians, astronomers, chemists, biologists, musicians, monks from disbanded monasteries, warlocks, out-of-work whores, students, Greeks, solicitors, a self-pitying albino, an architect, most of the pupils from the local comprehensive school who just heard the noise and come in, most of their teachers, Jerry's mum, a market gardener, less than one New Zealander, 200 Hungarians who had chosen freedom and the chance to make a fast buck, a sewing machine salesman, the mothers of 12 of the children from the local comprehensive school, the father of one of the children from the comprehensive school, although he didn't know it, a butcher, <laughs> Major Nye, a nooner person, another man, a displaced person, Flash Gordon Gavin, a small painter, and several hundred other individuals not immediately identifiable, including a Colonel Pyatt. So that's quite a quite a, an extensive guest list. A couple of people mentioned in there who aren't in the 60s edition who actually turn up being characters in Cargeri Cornelius novels further down the line. And the last one referred to, Colonel Pyatt, not only appears in later Jerry Cornelius novels, actually ended up the subject of four massive contemporary, in inverted commas, um, alternative history novels that Moorcock wrote in the 80s and 90s where he kind of progresses through the horrendous events of the 20th century as an observer and an unreliable narrator. And they're actually some of his most uh, fascinating books. And I, I haven't read them since they came out, and I'm looking forward to covering them. But by God, if we did four and a half, if we end up doing four and a half hours on the final programme, <laughs> we will do days on the Colonel Pyatt novels. Days. And then it says, Jerry, suffering from a little paramnesia, a recurrent but brief condition to which, like Miss Brunner, he was subject had the impression that he'd met everyone before but couldn't place most of them. He also had the impression of having said everything before, but he recognised what was happening and paid no attention. So the the party has, has commenced. And of course there's a reference there to the self-pity in Albina, a little reference to to Elric there. It it's a brilliant list though, you know, it not when I first see when I first read that massive list of colourful guest list of varied mix of people. Yeah. I thought initially. I thought, what a pointless list. What is this all about? You know, <laughs> it's it just seems to like go on forever and stuff. Yeah. You know, but reading it again, one of the things you kind of pick up on is that you think it just wouldn't have had the same impact if it was this, if it, if it was just covered in a sentence that there were a whole load of people with yeah. you know a colourful background and etc. It just wouldn't have had the same impact. What this actually does is it kind of really. You imagine all of these crazily different people mm. arriving in this party, and again, the, the absurdity that in that long list there's a mention of a heterosexual, yeah. like as if that became something abnormal. It's like, well, to, to, to kind of just have to kind of because obviously, we, we would in, in, in a few decades ago. It would have been exactly the same. It would have been that we would have actually identified someone who was homosexual hmm. in that kind of way. 
But in that long list, there isn't any kind of mention of that. And it's almost like, you know, the heterosexual is the odd one out here mm. rather than it be, you know, ev- everyone else. And, and the other thing that's, again, a little bit crazy is that, and I'd missed it probably the first time around, is Jerry's mum is in this yeah. list. Yeah. And I'm thinking, God, I, I would never want my mum to be <laughs> to a party like this. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jer- Jerry's mum, Mrs. Cornelius, becomes uh, a, a more frequent character in, yeah, in future books. There, there doesn't seem to be any reverence given to her being there in, in this massive list. It's just like, again, just a passing kind of comment. Yeah, you know, she's there as well, you know. Yeah. And uh, I'd, I'd have just been thinking, if my mum was at a party, at the very least, I'd have gone up to her, you know, and there'd have been something about a conversation about with, oh, you know, how, how are you doing, mum, all that, you know. Yeah. But there doesn't seem to be any of that. It's just literally like, you know, oh, yeah, and she happened to be there as well, mm. um, along with all of these other, you know, crazy people. Yeah, well, when when you discover Mrs. Cornelius in future books, uh, she's a larger than life character. I think it's fair to say um, she, she's not necessarily a, a paragon of motherhood. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I mentioned the Colonel Pyatt novels from the eighties and nineties. She actually is quite an important character in those novels as well, which kind of brings it all around to I think that idea that. You know, with, with Mocock, he, he likes to recycle and redevelop characters, which in some ways could be viewed viewed as I don't know, is it a, a bit lazy? I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But actually, it it just it it provides so much depth to his overall um, output, and well, you know, kind of make, making all these connections. I don't think it's necessarily lazy. I think there are there, you know, even if you consider like music, for example. There are people who like to kind of revisit the one track that they like to um, just redo over and over again, and so there'll be numerous versions that they'll do of it. A case in point would be someone like, for example, I don't know if you've listened to anything by Nightmares on Wax. Mm. Um, Ease does their whole uh, was it in the Night's Interlude, and and it, that becomes Le Nuit, which uses Quincy Jones's. I can't remember the track. Um, Somewhere in the City, I think, as a as a backdrop, but he kind of continues to revisit it for the first three albums yeah. i think he does a different version of it so I, i'm not sure if it's a lazy thing i think it's just kind of like maybe just putting different dimensions on the same sort of character mm. and just trying to work that through yeah absolutely but, uh, it's, it's consistently and constantly redeveloping the same themes yeah to to have different types of depth and to yeah. branch out in different directions and you know um I obviously don't consider it a bad thing because I'm a Mocock nerd and, and I love it all. I'm doing a <laughs> podcast about it. So, you know, just sometimes you challenge yourself on these things, I think. Yeah. So Jerry ends up uh, hooking up with the Swedish girl from uh, from previously in the book. But there's an interesting passage where, you know, they end up going off to bed and it says, but he dreamed of Catherine, of Catherine. He dreamed of Catherine. He emerged into her and he was Catherine. Catherine with a dart in her heart. Catherine himself. And when Frank came along, red as a lobster, he arched her body for Frank. When Frank had joined them, they walked in a summer garden, the three of them peaceful in her body. And mum. How many can one body take? He woke up before the dream became too crowded. He began to make love to Willa. Or was it Una? So that's a bit of a weird paragraph. Obviously he's still dreaming of Catherine and there's you get this first kind of idea of, of the merging of um bodies and the merging of genders and the merging of sex 
into yeah. into one body, which is a little bit of foreshadowing. But at the end yeah. of that, it says he began to make love to Ulla, or was it Una? Once again, you go back to the 60s edition, there's no mention whatsoever of Una. Una Person is another character who becomes an important character in the Jerry Carnelian canon, and actually kind of branches out into all sorts of other bits and pieces of Moorcock's fiction as well. So he's, he's kind of she re- revised on, this. She? She, yeah. she comes in later on in the, in the same book as... Um... She does. But, yeah, we'll get to that. So when he ends up in Sweden and marries the teacher... Mm. In the original 60s book, she's called Majbrit. Ah, okay. So he's revised it for it to be Una Person in this edition. So so it's con- not only is he constantly creating variations on themes, he actually goes back and revises his older works to make more explicit connections with his later works. And yeah, Una Person doesn't feature at all in the 67 edition of the final programme, but he's kind of weaved her back in. That's interesting. But just, just kind of before we move on to that, one of the things um, I'd kind of put, uh, put scribbled a note about was, um, you know, I've, I talk about the kind of the projection of this book into the future. And I'm guessing it was a futuristic book um, in, in the 60s in that way. But one of the things that, um, again, is, is interesting is, is where just before he gets into the house and he's got these big massive gates and it's it's opens through voice recognition and it would have been a concept that would have been people might have dreamed about but it actually happens now i mean i actually bark at my um, google assistant now <laughs> to switch the lights on and off you know yeah. and i was just reading that and i was thinking geez you know um, at, at that point, it would have just been something so kind of like you know, in a in a in a world that would have been so far away, maybe never kind of reached, you know. But mm. here we are in 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 you know, two thousand and twenty one, and we we are doing this, you know. I'm sure there are gates that are clearly open with like people's voices now. Oh um, yeah, yeah. So, Everything's like done through Alexa or absolutely um, all of all these household assistants. You know, yeah. you've even got Wi-Fi enabled fridges and God knows what else. Yeah, I've got I've missed down, but I've kind of got sucked into that world. So oh, yeah. um, you know, I I actually do that kind of thing with as I said to you. Um, when watching a movie sort of thing, I'll kind of bark at me. Uh, Google Assistant and ask it to put movie time lights and it'll kind of dim all the lights. Right. Which all kind of looks off, you know. Um, yeah. My dad would have loved that, you know. He'd have been, uh, he'd have been all over that because my dad had an obsession with lights and dim lights and all of that kind of thing, you know. But, um, yeah, it, it's, it's again, it's, uh, pe- people reading it today wouldn't think too much of it uh, in that, especially if they didn't have a clue that this was written in the 60s. They would have just been like, oh, yeah, it happens, you know. So it, it was a, uh, it was just something I kind of scribbled on the side as I was kind of going along and reading it again. I think that is is a really good point. The thing about the voice assisted gate, but it's counterbalanced quite spectacularly by the description of the supercomputer later on, <laughs> two hundred feet high, two hundred feet wide, and yeah. super fast. Yes. And I, I, I think that was because, as I think we mentioned it in the previous book, uh, the previous uh, podcast, that at that age. Uh, sorry, at that at that time point, there was this impression that supercomputers had to be massive, yeah. and um, there was this um, obsession war with trying to make things bigger and bigger and bigger. And somewhere between that time and now, we've kind of the obsession is to make things as smaller and smaller, but as powerful as previously. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, the possibilities of miniaturization yeah. um, and and microchips hadn't quite emerged yeah. in the in in like the, the the public mind at that point. I think everybody was still thinking about giant like washing machine sized things with spinning tips. Yeah. So, you, so you're getting all those brilliant movies from back at the time. You know, the most most powerful computer in the world, and it's just like uh, 48 washing machines <laughs> with, with, with tips spinning around all over them. Yeah, which which probably were about as effective as a ZX81. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We so put that in like a, a, a little box now. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah, absolutely. A Raspberry Pi absolutely. is probably more powerful than all the computers in the world in 1967 <laughs> by by some considerable distance. So anyway, the the uh, Jerry and the Swedish girl wake up the next day, and the party is, says the party is just starting to warm up. <laughs> so he showers and changes, and uh, the party continues. There's some dead special branch officers. <laughs> the French polishers have a gangbang. Um, Jerry goes to bed with little Miss Dazzle, the pop starlet, who, who because he feels sorry for her because her manager died in the raid on his dad's chateau, and the party goes on for months. And it's incredible, out- doesn't it? That he there's there's dead bodies, and <laughs> yeah, and he doesn't even flinch that there's there's actually these dead bodies around. He almost like kicks them in contempt. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, well, he does at one point. Yeah. He kicks a special a dead special branch officer <laughs> with absolute contempt. Yeah, and it's again, I was just like, this is bonkers, you know. But it it gets a again. It's what what's brilliant is that even it's subtle, it gives you a sense of that anarchy that mm. is happening around where you know people don't second glance a dead body anymore. Yeah, I, I remember. I, I do remember back in the day house parties where you'd be at. Uh, my friends all lived in a shared house um, in Louis Street in Hull, and if I was working Monday to Friday at that point, um, I would go down there at five half past five, and then half past five six o'clock on Friday night was party time. Every, everything would would kick off, and by Sunday. I would go home, and I, I would literally spend forty-eight hours there. And it was—it wasn't a Jerry Cornelius party, but it was—you would get to the point where you can only take so much, and then you try and take more to try and reinvigorate the feeling from the night before, and it fails, and you just feel worse, and you feel filthy, and and it feels like your clothes are sweating, and, and every, everything on you is is um, just feels fucking awful. And when I read that bit in the in, about the Jerry Cornelius party where there's dead dead special branch officers, it's like that times five thousand. It's it's like that. I just imagine that, you know, that party is now becoming, and, and it goes on for several more months, <laughs> but that party is just becoming the point where everything is breaking down to the point where, um, yeah, it, it, it is anarchy, but it, it, it gives me, uh, like, strange um, muscle memories of being so wasted and in, and in such a state that you, you just can't continue anymore. But this just goes on and on and on and on. And it, it must be. Uh, I'd hate to be Jerry's cleaner, is all I can say. But but to be honest, his cleaners are probably involved in the gangbangs. So you know, it's it's just a free for all, yeah. isn't it? But, but it's what's interesting, people come and people go, people die. You yeah. Know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. So it, it 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 does seem to be that the the party is continually reinvigorated by this kind of new audience that continues to keep it alive and keeps the flame burning. Yeah, and I think he says at one point there's there's a hardcore group of people become like the, the, the kind of the core of the party who never leave, um, and th- there's uh, a, a reference to as the party's going on and and he supervises more deliveries 
of supplies for the party. London outside is kind of getting more and more decayed and the streets are getting emptier and emptier and emptier. And the drivers, when they're delivering stuff, the first they stop taking his checks, then they stop taking pound notes and eventually he has to pay them in gold sovereigns because, because no other currency is worth anything. So whilst this party is going on, the rest of society outside of the party, outside of his walls is just turning into absolute shit. But the party goes on. The party just goes on. And he has this... Um, Interesting conversation, which in the book is with Colonel Pyatt. Sorry, the 2016 edition that we're reading. But in the 67 book, it's the morose psychiatrist from the guest list. So once again, a little bit of revisionism. Colonel Pyatt has this conversation with him rather than the morose psychiatrist. And the exchange kind of goes into a little bit more detail about how badly things are breaking down and, and whilst the party is continuing. But Jerry's gaff is just kind of completely self-sufficient in all of this stuff and almost insulated from, from, the, from the decay and the breakdown and the entropy in the outside world. And we find that some maniac is threatening to drop atomic bombs on European capitals. Like there's, um, It's like there's a James Bond villain threatening European capitals, but psychedelic super spy Jerry Cornelius has just insulated it from it all because he's having a three-month-long party. And it's just some a little bit of news he hears that's just kind of irrelevant because the party continues. But then after his conversation with... Uh, the psychiatrist in July, well, Miss Bruner and Marek turn up. So Miss Bruner finally turns up to the party three months in. Because I think the party says the party begins in spring and she turns up in July. And um, in another piece of foreshadowing, they have a quick conversation and they all share a toast. And she toasts to hermaphrodite. So we move on and Miss Bruner explains to Jerry actually his father's secrets after all this time. And after that, after that suggestion in the previous chapter that there's a, a some kind of evil mastermind threatening to to drop atomic bombs on all the european cities miss brunner just kind of casually admits it's her yeah. <laughs> she found all of uh all of hitler's atomic bomb rockets in lapland and just sent a memo around all the european capitals to say, <laughs> say that they might they might bomb the capitals but actually uh it don't actually don't work anyway because the Germans didn't have the right heavy water to make it to make the reaction happen with the uranium, so she just threatened threatened the European capitals purely to accelerate the breakdown of chaos, the breakdown of order and, and the descent into chaos. So Miss Brunner is now like she she is some kind of wacky psychedelic mastermind villain who's accelerating all of this whilst also sexual vampire like absorbing literally absorbing people and and taking their essence in to feed her own um and she's been recruiting scientists and engineers to build her ultimate computer so she says to jerry yeah can i do some recruiting here as well and he says yeah sure yeah. i've had en- i've had enough of it now <laughs> it, but the, the 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 thing about her being this villain is that it's it's not that it it's like a villain without any um, credentials. It's like yeah. the, the rest of the world is actually really shit scared, and and, yeah. and her power is increasing to the point where she is now kind of like the top dog. You know, essentially, mm. she be- starts becoming the law um, because of her influence around the yeah. rest of the world. That's that's what makes it absolutely brilliant that he just says to her, "Yeah, all right." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fine. Uh, so, so it was it was you, was it? Yeah, yeah. I want I, I want to recruit more more um, more scientists and engineers for my evil master plan. And he's like, yeah, all right. I've had enough of this party now. Take yeah. whatever you want. And he says he's, he's reinvigorated now. So yeah. you know, he's, it, it took him what 
God knows how many months that party went on for, but it, that that's that's the level of depletion of energy he seemed to have had yeah. to, for him to actually have to spend so much time at this party to get himself re-energized. Yeah, which um, when it which in itself says something about the state that he was in before. Yeah, yeah. So after doing a little bit of uh, recruiting, they end up with uh, with their list. And we found a little bit more, not only about who she's trying to recruit, but we also we found out about her master plan for her supercomputer. A biologist, three. Acherologist, one. Ecologist, two. Acrologist, one. Adenologists, five. Aesthenophysiologists, six. Aetiologists, two. Alephiologist, one. Alchemist, one. Amphibiologists, ten. Anatripsologist, one. Andrologists, ten. Angiologists, four. Anorganologists, three. Anthropologists, four. Anthromorphopologists, one. Archaeologists, four. Archaeologists, six. Areologists, two. Arthrologists, four. Asthenologists, two. Astrolithologist, one. Astrologers, seven. Astrometeorologist, one. Atomologists, two. Audiologists, one. Oxologists, six. Your want list, Jerry studied the pages. There were 26 categories corresponding to the letters of the alphabet. I filled most of it, she said. I heard of your party through a histologist I hired. One of his colleagues were at it. So, you came along to try to complete the list. Some arc you're building. She looked ecstatic. I'm the arc. I'm the deluge. Within the year, I've had the hot lake roofed over, laboratories and plants put up. Dual is the most marvellous thing you've ever seen. Decimal unit electronic linkage. It will fill half the cave system. At this moment, it has the capabilities of any machine in existence, except that it's much faster. We'll complete the assembly in another year, and that's when the real work will begin. So, two things there. Number one is, when you're writing this in 1964 or 65 or wherever, um, you can't go on the internet to find out <laughs> how many scientists begin with air. So that's quite an impressive piece of work, and I didn't bother Googling them all. I just took his word for it. But the other brilliant thing is that the dual decimal unit electronic linkage is such a 60s sci-fi, um, almost like Avengers TV series name for a big evil supercomputer. It's brilliant. Do you know something, though? When I when I read that acronym, anyone who works in the space in, in research will tell you that that's the kind of bollocks that still happens <laughs> where people want to identify, have their you know, study identified in an easier way and yeah. they'll come up with the most stupid acronym you know, to kind of make it sound like a word. Yeah. And so it still happens. It still happens, you know. So it, it's to anyone who works in that space will tell you honestly that it's not, it, 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 it's not completely out of, you know, it, it doesn't seem like it's so outdated. You know, yeah. it's it, it's still relevant. I think you know, I I, I didn't think it was that much. <laughs> you know, some of the studies that I've kind of seen over the last few years. You know, I'm telling you, it, it could it could be that there might actually be a, a dual research study with a different acronym, and which might not be too different to that. I'm telling you, we we both worked in public sector for a long time. Um, you you've worked in research. For a long time, and yeah, you're absolutely right. The ridiculous lengths people go to to come up with or crowbar in a description of some kind of activity to a snappy 
acronym that they can make work. Well, when we worked together at the CSU, I think there were numerous examples of it. And yeah, absolutely, absolutely nonsensical, most of them. So I suppose this one gets away with it to some extent because decimal unit electronic linkage, I suppose to some degree actually makes some kind of sense. Well, the thing is, at least that's using the uh, beginning of each word as its acronym. I mean, in, in research, we've got to a stage now where you can just pick a, a letter from anywhere in the in the census and you can pick that out you know that's what people are doing <laughs> you know because they can't quite get it to sound what, what they actually want it so they just think well you know there's a u in in the middle of that i'll just use that as uh, the, the u in dual yeah so so marek describes um how unique and brilliant this dual computer system is and after doing so, he's obviously fulfilled his purpose because the next thing we know is uh, Marek's clothes are found all neatly uh, folded and piled up. So, Well, I think it's the like... first time you, you do get an indication that what is actually happening. Yeah. Up to now, I think it's it's more subtle, but that particular moment, it's it's as much as she admits what's about to happen. Yeah. And he kind of willfully, I suppose, submits. Um, whereas in for other uh, other incidences, it doesn't seem to have given indication that there was any kind of willful party <laughs> in yeah. in what was about to happen. Yeah, and, this, this uh, is this is a little bit more explicit, isn't it? Not sexually yeah. explicit, but you know, it's 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 a little bit more clear that Miss Brunner has basically got what she needs from him, and it's his time. Yeah. Interestingly, though, uh, in the, the thing I get the, the other thing that popped into my head as I was reading all that, uh, we've talked about how um, some of the things that have that that Morcock might have done and and um pioneered has then been reused by other people in in their um novels etc and um my missus used to watch was it I think it's a Netflix thing or a prime thing probably a prime thing um called gods which has um the guy who's lovejoy oh in Shane, oh american american gods with american Shane, gods yeah, yeah that's yeah. the one yeah and there's a character in there called bilkis um, and she essentially does that kind of thing where she right. has sex with um, people and then kind of hoovers them up through yep. their vagina. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, interesting that, because American Gods is based on a book by Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman is a massive Michael Moorcock fan and actually wrote uh, um, like a, I can't remember, an essay or a short story called My Life Furnished in Early Moorcock. So there is a direct connection between Moorcock and Miss Brunner and Neil Gaiman and American Gods. A direct connection. Yeah. Yeah, yeah huge Moorcock fan, Neil Gaiman. He's written forwards to some of his books as well, some reissues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at this point, um, Jerry goes out into wider London because he needs to get out of the house because he's fed up at the party. And now it all starts to go super trippy. Super trippy. He goes out for a drive in his Duesenberg and... Says Jerry felt uneasy driving the Duesenberg through the ill-frequented streets. London was littered. London was grey. Though here and there, a crowd, extravagantly dressed, would give beauty to the picture. To Jerry, as he passed them, each crowd seemed a single unit, a composite creature, many-limbed and many-headed. Nearer the centre of the town, the crowds were bigger creatures, getting bigger and bigger. As he came close to Piccadilly Circus, Jerry felt alone, and the crowd creatures seemed menacing. In the chicken fry, he found that chicken was off. It was flavoured algae, and like it, he didn't bother. The big place was poorly lit, and he sat near the back in shadow. 
He was the only customer, the only person, except for the Maltese counterhand who never looked up. As the light grew fainter, a crowd came in, its thick, snake-like body squeezing through the glass double doors and flowing out to fill the interior. It frightened Jerry, and Jerry loved crowds, but he was not in this one, and he did not want to be. It flowed forward and detached part of itself at him. He got up quickly, drawing his needle gun. At that moment, he wanted a gun with plenty of dum-dum bullets. The part grinned slyly, and the rest of it mirrored the grin, all its heads turned towards him. Jerry drew a number of shallow breaths, and tears filled his eyes as he stood there, looking into the face of the crowd. The part sat down where Jerry had been sitting, and Jerry recognised it then. Shades, he whispered. Who? whispered back the part. Shades. No. Who are you? What? You? No. Jerry shot the part in the white throat. Spots of blood made a necklace around the pale flesh. The crowd gasped and began to undulate. Jerry pushed through it. It broke and reformed behind him until he was in the centre. Then, when he tried to push on, it gave like the walls of a stomach. But it didn't break. He shot some more needles into it and hacked and clawed his way towards the door. Outside was the big safe Dusenberg. He wept as he made the street, turned and saw a hundred white faces, all with identical expressions pressed against the glass, staring at him. That's really fucking nightmarish and weird. And it's a great passage. Yeah, it, it kind of... I don't know, I, was, I don't know what the heck was going on really, but I just envisaged that it was some sort of like zombie-like thing going on where people were turning into things that Jerry certainly didn't recognise. And um, and it with Shades, reference to Shades there, you know, a, a, an old friend of his, it seems to have he've turned into something again that was a kind of zombie-like way. He'd, he'd um, almost got tears in his eyes to kind of recognise that something was going on um, I don't know what the heck was going on really, but as I said, as I was reading it, I just felt like it was uh, maybe because I'd probably watched an episode of that. I don't know what it's called, some zombie thing. <laughs> mm. Yeah, but it felt I think, like that. Yeah, I think um, it's it's reflective. The way I read it, it's reflective of Jerry losing his grip on not only his own individuality as as he's getting pulled closer and closer into the orbit of Miss Brunner. But actually, he's, he's beginning to fail to recognise the individuality of people. And where previously there are these references that he needs to be in the heart of a city and have 15 miles of built-up city around him and be at the heart of people, and people are essentially his his drug and what sustains him. After this three-month-long party, after the the sense that everything is breaking down, after the, the sense that he comes closer and closer into the orbit of Miss Bruder and her, and her master plan, and as he sees the... The, the world starting to break down, his ability to actually differentiate people is just collapsing and now being part of this being part of a crowd is nightmarish and horrible to him and is and is is trying to escape it. Uh, you could also take it literally as, as um London is breaking down to the point where people are are starting to stop being individuals. It could be um a little bit more um of an allegory about the lack of identity of individuals um you know, as 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 the world kind of progresses towards this point where everything is homogenous, you know, you could read it a, a few different ways, yeah. but because Jerry reflects the world that he lives in, it's like I think it's all of those things. I guess it is. It is one of these things, though, isn't it? That when you kind of start to think a little bit deeper about even the world that we're kind of in, you know, where we constantly hear about the you know Instagram influences mm-hmm. and um, the paradox of kind of wanting to stand out but having to be the same mm. and and the, and the things that people 
then you know some people then rile against you know because it, it's a world that they don't recognize i guess yeah um i mean there are parallels it's, it's 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 interesting that that kind of it's something probably I didn't really pick up on, but as you were talking about that, it, it did strike me that as much as that feels like a a, a world that isn't relevant in or, or only in, a, in a, a world that's only relevant in this story, actually is kind of I can see the parallels in today's world as well mm. with that. Mm. As I get older, I get more and more um, stressed by crowds, so I, I can kind of identify with this to a degree. Because I, I once had an experience at a, a music festival where um, I was in the centre of a crowd about 50 feet from the stage when Rage Against the Machine started playing. And um, and actually when that crowd started to move and, and I felt myself kind of being lost in it and started to lose control of... I actually, I actually pretty much lost control of myself and had to fight and kick my way out of the crowd. So that I, I, I'm always reminded of that when I read this passage about him like fighting and clawing to kick his way out of this crowd in the chicken shop. I was actually kicking and fighting my way out to get out of this like massive mass of people, and I was having, I had like a long, sustained, probably five minute long panic attack, <laughs> trying trying to get away from Rage Against the Machine and the and the effect it was having on the audience. I, I think just by and large now, if if I go to a restaurant, if I go to a pub or I go anywhere, I try to avoid places that are kind of full of that packed mass of people. Yeah, I mean, I've I've never been. I've never really liked. The big crowds, you know, even, even um, I could only take small doses of certain things like, uh, you know, I said I was hugely into hip hop in my uh, youth, and um, but the the places that I always sought out were places that were a little bit more intimate in in the way that they kind of you know um, had it, rather than those big super clubs, you know, like Cream and all that kind of stuff that was around at the time. I always sought out the places where you could almost kind of like go up and speak to the people who were, you know, DJing and and um, and and get to know that kind of crowd in that kind of way. Um, but one of the things that, uh, um, again, as we're talking, one of the things that is interesting in that analogy of wanting to kind of be individual but being sucked into this crowd that you do no longer sort of recognise. Is, is that moment where, you know, when you first discover music mm. and, and a certain genre of music that you love and you kind of want everyone to kind of know about all of that, you know, all this, this, this thing that you've discovered, but really what you're wanting is, you know, a certain type of crowd to actually want to listen to it. Because when the masses get hold of it, you know, it ceases to be that special kind of like thing, you know, you end up just becoming... You know, just another kind of like uh, you almost feel like people don't appreciate it, and yeah. and it just gets merged into this one block of mass market type of arrangement. Where, for example, I remember like for example when when the Fugees, one of the tracks I can't remember which it was that that just blew up, and I I remember was walking on the streets and I'd hear it in every Tom Dick and Harry's car, yeah, and I just I hated it. You know, I hated hearing it, you know, because it felt like something that was precious to me had begun lost. It's kind of like the analogue of that kind of thing is happening here. Yeah. yeah I, whenever we love something that's that's niche, it always feels more personal to us, Aye. doesn't it? And then um, and then it becomes mainstream. It's like, oh, how disappointing. <laughs> it's great, great for them to have that success. How disappointing. It's not like a little niche thing that's so close to my chest. Yeah. That, that feels in, almost intimate. Yeah. Yeah. 
I guess that in the same way this individuality yeah. that was present and now kind of like there's this 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 world that's kind of like you know as, as you say uh, Miss Bruner's kind of like um, influence this kind of almost like mass market of people you know with mm. one kind of like you know um, one view one vision one everything else kind of that, that individuality is kind of being sucked out mm. yeah after after his experience with the chicken shop. He goes to the friendly bum, and even the friendly bum has sank, kind of succumbed to this, yeah. this, this amorphous existence. And it says, uh, tentatively he descended the stairs. The spotlight had been turned onto the stage, and there sat the heavy-eyed musicians moulded onto or around their instruments. The pianotron played deep, sonorous, over-sustained chords. In the centre of the place stood a tired pyramid of flesh that moved to the slow rhythm, near quiescent, and the temperature of the place seemed sub-zero. It hadn't lasted, Jerry thought. It should not have reached this stage until he was at least 40. He was a fool to have helped Miss Brunner to accelerate the process. It left him adrift. So even even um, the friendly bum is one of his places of, of absolute peace and, and sources of energy has kind of succumbed to this now. And Miss Brunner is there in full-on power villain mode. And Jerry kind of essentially is, is given up by this point and she, she has him bundled into a car and taken away. And um, there's, again, there's just a tiny little revision in this where it, it refers to a sin telling the bishop to get the car. That's not in the 67 edition. But the bishop is uh, a character that fe- features quite frequently in, in subsequent books and is almost part of Miss Brunner's gang, a fat, vile bishop called Bishop Beasley, who, um, when we get onto the subsequent books, we'll find out just how... Um, how depraved Bishop Beasley! <laughs> how depraved Bishop Beasley is, and he also has a love of Mars bars, which is kind of beside the point. So she flies him to the North Pole, and uh, and he learns that nowhere is safe from the the rapid accelerating entropy. But we learn more about Miss Brunner in this chapter that she's she is old and she is powerful, and she's a lot older than than um, than Jerry, even Jerry kind of uh, suspects and she refers to she makes a, a, a reference to her son and her son being a, a scientist that his dad worked with during the war even though that's kind of a little bit spotty we find out a little bit further along the line mm. but she has memories of seeing fritz lang movies in the cinema and so we know she's almost like a classic vampire really miss mm. brunner isn't she except that you know her her way of sustaining her youth and power is to absorb people through through sexual intercourse, much like the character in American Gods, so she she does have these um, uh, incredible powers, and Jerry is just really kind of almost helpless now. Jerry is a protagonist now; he's just along for the ride, isn't he? Yeah, the, the, this interesting thing about that, you know, her maintaining her youth, and I, I did wonder whether or not um, there's an ability that she has to kind of give the same to other people in some capacity in that. Do you remember where Marek comes over to, um, uh, I think, the party, and mm. Jerry says something like, Marek looked younger, yeah, um, more ingenuous or something like that, I think. Yeah, uh, I think when we first meet Marek, he's like a 50- or 60-year-old yeah. guy, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden he's changed. He's, he's changed in both his um, integrity, it feels like, as well as his looks, you know, that it's, it's almost like he's been possessed. So I, I, it did make me wonder whether or not she does beyond her 
abilities to be this vampire kind of character, whether to be able to give it to other people as well, if should she wish. Maybe yeah. I'm reading too much into it. No, I don't think so. I think Jerry's even um, the recipient of some of her energy as we move further forward, particularly as, as we get to the end where it becomes a lot more obvious, yeah. you know, that, that actually Jerry is, is on a path now, a, a conclusion that really draws him closer and closer and closer to Miss Brunner. And, and if anything, she's kind of bringing out those qualities that he had were, um, or those features that he had as a character where he needed to draw on the energy of people around him. It's becoming more and more explicit as, as he gets dragged further and further and further into that into that Miss Brunner space. We t- found out that Professor Hera's there too. So she hired Professor Hera. So Professor Hera's back. And and she she refers to Pro- Professor Hera as uh, a link with Jerry. So not only is Professor Hera there with importance as a scientist, but also she describes him as like a link between her and Jerry, mm. which has some kind of level of importance because we know that Professor Hera and Jerry have had uh, a sexual relationship. So that so that link there's like a, a a throughput of sexual energy now that Miss Brunner is bringing together, but there's still kind of there's still something that she needs to close the circle. Um, meanwhile, after spending weeks living this weird idyllic existence, where she's basically just essentially looking after Jerry and um, and soothing his brow and making him feel better about everything about about the fact that you know she's accelerated all of this, she's just manipulating him flawlessly and effortlessly even to the point where she d- she dispatches him on an assassination trip to go and assassinate her inverted commas son and get some vital piece of information or equipment so jerry goes back to uh, back to blighty and again there's a really really kind of cool description it says in kent they landed and a dodge dart and driver were waiting for him the driver, as silent as the pilot, drove Jerry through a land of drifters, smoke and disturbance, a warped landscape that he only glimpsed as he hunched in his seat and let himself be carried towards the Warmering Research Institute. The place was on the south coast, just outside a run-down seaside resort. Jerry had memories of the place, whitewashed regency and the smell of spun sugar and frozen custard, cold promenade and green railings, pale lights at night and the silhouette of the pier, faint music, blue cafes and open-top buses. Even as a child, he disliked it all, had turned inland when left to himself. The Wormering Institute stood on a slope on the Sussex Downs. On the top of the hill was an estate that seemed to have been built during the war. It still had a temporary look about it. The road took them through its concrete streets, a small grid of blocks with two-storied houses, white walls and dull red roofs. Puzzled eyes looked out of hollow faces at them. The people stood in family groups. A father, a mother, a son and a daughter... Arms folded, heads turning a little as they passed. A stunned, wronged place. I really, really like that paragraph. Like this, this um, run-down old seaside resort where the people are just like you know, lost. Basically, it's like Rill. <laughs> That's like a description of Rill. Um, but bottom line is, he uh, he ends up having this conversation with uh, this Doctor Leslie Baxter, who completely denies that Miss Brunner is his mother, and as Jerry shoots him to death multiple times, continues to protest that his mother and father were real and different people. And then his secretary walks in, is absolutely horrified, and Jerry just shoots her in the back, quite coldly and brutally. And job done, he returns to Miss Brunner. It's even while he's kind of there, in that conversation that he's um, having with Leslie Baxter about, he asks something like, how's Catherine? 
and he bluntly just says she's dead. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, was, I killed her. Yeah, just just like a real cold assassin. You know, it is yeah. um, almost like devoid of all that emotion and just kind of when says he leaves. Yeah, he just kind of says something like, you know, shall we ta- talk about the mattering hand? <laughs> You know? yeah. yeah, like like all all that stuff. You know, you could just um... when he leaves, the driver says, "Any trouble, sir?" And he says, "No." With luck, they'll never have a suspicion of who we were. Haven't we better go fast now? No sense in going too fast on these roads, sir. But someone may come after us. That's not very likely, sir. There's a lot of violent death about, sir. I mean, take me. I'm an ex-policeman. You can't blame the police, sir. They're an overburdened body of men. I suppose they must be. They went back to the airfield in silence. Whose mother was who? And then the beginning of chapter 14, it's just, no, of course he wasn't my son. (laughs) 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 Miss Brunner leafed eagerly through the file. Uh, What is that all about? So she's just dispatched him to brutally assassinate someone. But did she absorb his mother at some point? Is, Is that the suggestion? She wasn't literally his mother, but did she absorb his mother at some point in the past? Because there's that duality with Miss Brunner, isn't there? That she absorbs people and essentially they become part of her. So that was my reading of that. She wasn't literally his mother, but his mother met her end at being absorbed in the sack by Miss Brunner. So at this stage, we know that Europe is a boiling sea of chaos, but Jerry needs to travel to clear his mind. He heads off into Sweden, which Sweden seems to still have some... um, modicum of stability this is a bit of classic jerry cornelius in that he gets a lift off a couple of swedish students then seduces them and nicks the volvo (laughs) (laughs) and then later on he shacks up for a year with a teacher in ecclestuna marries her attends parties validates scientific papers becomes really really popular playing in a band and uh, ends up with a name what's what's the name that he takes on there i think robinson Robinson, flanders or something like that robinson Robinson flanders Flanders. yeah yeah it becomes really really popular and and then again in in the 67 edition he marries majbrit the teacher but in this edition it's una person so another another bit of revision to introduce una person but of course, after a couple of years, Jerry's paradise is interrupted by Miss Brunner and he's just simply unable to resist her. And neither is Madgebrit stroke Una. And they end up back at um, Lap Lab, as they've labelled the uh, the laboratory under Lapland. And what's referred to as G-Day approaches, which is the launch of this supercomputer which holds the sum total of knowledge of all of mankind and will produce some kind of solution. Professor Hera is there and... Madgebrit stroke Una are there and they all have a delicious meal and then there's a curious passage in which essentially they both exit the story, their clothes are folded neatly um, but there's there's then that the suggestion that actually Jerry shared in that experience and he, he's completely succumbed now to whatever Miss Brunner's scheme is. Jerry Cornelius as a protagonist throughout this book really doesn't have a terrific amount of agency because he's pretty much manipulated by Miss Brunner from the very, very outset. And as we close in on the conclusion of the book, there is no suggestion whatsoever that Jerry, as the protagonist of this book, will take control of his own destiny and actually be a hero. (laughs) (laughs) And this is another example of just how how brilliant and out there this book is, um, that he basically does exactly what Miss Brunner needs him to do. And after a, a, a brief uh, encounter with some police officers who turned up to check on the disappearance of uh, Robinson Flanders and his wife, Jerry, feeling all full of vigour 
from the absorption of Professor Hera and his wife, takes on one of the police officers and gets shot. The final part of Miss Brunner's plan comes into play. You know, at this stage, I know there's always a lot of spoilers on this show because we basically talk about the books from start to finish. But Phase 4, which is basically the final part of the book, is so out there. How do we begin to describe the finale of this book? Or do we not? And do we allow people to find out for themselves? That's a really, really key question. I've never really had too much trouble spoiling the end of Mocock's fantasy books, but there is not one of these books that has an ending that is so bombed out. And so, and actually, not just bombed out, but ridiculously playful in the way it's delivered. Yeah, as, and I think I've kind of alluded to that earlier, that it's, it's one of these things, that, is that, and I think it's happened each time I've read it, that it's this the pace picks up, the pace picks up, and things are happening really rapidly, and you end up at this phase four bit of it, and you can't help but think, what the, <laughs> you know, what is going on? Here, you know? It just starts. It 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 becomes like um, there's all the kind of um, sci-fi fantasy and all that kind of stuff that I, I'm, you know, I, I'm. <laughs> you know, I'm prepared for. As I said to you before, that I'm not really into it all. But even with all of that, you know, even with all that pretext, nothing really prepares you for where this is all kind of heading towards in the end. Yeah. And but one of the interesting things just before all of that happens, when you know, when they're having the meal with with everyone, there, there doesn't seem to be that alarm that I would have expected in Una's. You know, because uh, the, the Professor Hero and, and, and the others, I think, seem to be always kind of aware of some kind of, you know, different plane of existence, etc. They kind of yeah. like more kind of accepting of what, everything that's happening. But it doesn't seem to be that his, his wife seems to have this, you know, uh, I, I would have expected a little bit more resistance from from his wife. I don't know whether there was something that was just completely just like glossed over. Uh, yeah, it's like at that point, Miss Brunner has become so powerful, she's just got like a godlike pull and charisma. Yeah. Because at one point, Jerry Jerry says, there is no sexual attraction. Yeah. You have you have no sexual attraction. Yes, and that's she just right. Kind of, she just laughs it off and she says, but, you know, nevertheless, here we are. Yeah. And he's, he's not able to, to resist it. She is, throughout this book, she is the villain, is in complete control. Yeah. And she never relinquishes his control. She gets more and more powerful, and Jerry loses all of his agency, and all of the other characters are just pulled like moths to a flame to the point where this final program for Duel, the computer, as far as she's concerned, goes off without a hitch. And, um, you know, I, I don't think we will spoil Phase 4, and I don't think we will say exactly what happens, because it's just... I think I think people just need to read this book, because... You're right, not only is it fast-paced, but every time I pick this book up and reread it again, it's so fucking easy to read, and it's such a great page-turner. And every time you reread a different chapter, like the chapter in the chicken shop and the friendly bum, or the passage around when he, he just basically becomes a, a rock musician and, and lover of an English teacher who... who like you can almost imagine him wearing a tweed jacket and smoking a pipe, re- reviewing scientific papers in this brief lull before Miss Brunner turns up and says, "Come on, back, to, back to, uh, back to the call first. It's, it's, it's Mocock at his best because even when you're reading it, it's, it's easy to read. It's a great page turner. It's brilliantly written. Even when he's on day three of his 
drug-induced fugue state of furious writing and battering his typewriter, it's still better than 95% of any other science fiction or fantasy or whatever else I've ever read. It's so eminently readable. And again, reading this finale, when I read it last year when we were covering it, for the first time probably since my... I might have reread it in my 20s. I can't remember. But certainly rereading it for the first time in well over 25 years. I still can't believe what a brilliant book it is and what a fucking mad finale it is. And not a mad finale in the way that it's like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> I'm not having that. It's a mad finale in that, like, my God, you ballsy fucker, you know, leading us through this story, doing this with your inverted commas hero. It's just it's just brilliant. Yeah. It- and... There's more to come. <laughs> I think one of the other things interesting, I mean, I'm, I know I'm kind of encroaching here on, um, uh, in, a, in a space that we, uh, we won't go to, but when the finale comes, as I, we've, we've talked about this theme of, you know, almost gender fluidity, yeah. but Miss Bruner ends up as this kind of like godlike figure. She has kind of more and more kind of like as the plan unfolds and there is in in many of the religions god is oft, often depicted as neither male or female in, in this book in essence it kind of is almost similar in terms of that outlook you know that yeah. we end up with this strange being you know and and i said it, it's it's it is very very brave um and, and maybe it is because one of the things about I think things like sci-fi is that I think as you mentioned earlier with Star Trek etc, I think one of the things it allows you is it gives you a license to deal with things and say things in a way which is safer yeah, than yeah, other places to, to say it because it kind of you, you're kind of doing it under the pretext of oh, oh, oh this is all just kind of bullshit you know we're just kind of like just mm. thinking about rubbish stuff and it doesn't it, it doesn't have the same controversy. As if it were, if it were depicted as something in real life, and I think that in itself is really kind of interesting to be able to explore things in this kind of way, um, which people feel it's it's okay to do so. So, for example, if you're talking about something like Life of Brian, you know, depicted in in a in a world which uh, you know people are, can be very easily uh, offended by that because people see that as the, the, those kind of themes as a direct attack on them, whereas put it into this kind of space. And nobody thinks that there's a direct attack on any of their kind of beliefs, etc. Mm. But they're still exploring similar kind of themes that are in well, not not certainly not like <laughs> not, not like Life of Brian, but in, mm. they, 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 they they might be exploring themes that you could easily pull out into the real world. It reminds me of my one of my uncles um, who sadly passed away with COVID. He was always really loudmouthed, you know, really kind of out there, extrovert, and. Um, and often found him being able to say things that other people would be perhaps thinking, but would never have had the license to do so. Because over mm. the years, people just kind of would turn around to say, oh, well, it's just him. You know, he, he it's, you know how he is, you know. And I think this whole kind of science fiction uh, fantasy veil allows people like Morcock to kind of be able to express all of these things that would be regarded as um, taboo subjects. And that's that's one of the beauties of of genre fiction. It sometimes goes the other way, you know. Um, you, you you get some genre fiction that actually is the repository of some pretty unusual and um, unpleasant kind of attitudes. So that's certainly the case. But at its best, this kind of genre fiction is is a space. It's a playground for these kind of ideas. And this is a perfect example of that. It's fifty five years since I think the first edition was published. It's 
56 or 57 years since it was serialized in a magazine and okay i think i think the playfulness of phase four and the way in which the the final version of of jerry and um, and miss brunner kind of behaves and talks to people is super playful and while there's a combination of probably mocock thinking i've got to go to bed soon <laughs> i've been up for three days um the, it's, the party it's, uh, started to uh, <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah that's right yeah yeah, yeah, I've just, I've just tripped over two special branch bodies. Um, yeah, yeah, better go clean up. He, he always, he always has that that, that freedom um, to just, uh, you know, I'm not going to spend five years refining a book. This is the idea. This is how it's come out. It's out there. But you know what? Next time, I'm going to write another Jerry Carnegie story. I'm going to write a cure for cancer, and I'm going to start with a fresh sheet and a fresh page with a bunch of characters, and I'm going to do something completely different with it. And this is how it's going to come out this time. I think that's why he's he, he's probably so popular at the time. He was knocking out four or five books a year. You always knew that even if there was like sort of maybe a, a slight misstep or or a shortfall in one of his books, it didn't matter because there was another one around the corner where he might he might correct it or he might do something completely different, something completely fresh. But I think out out of all of his um, out of his all of his books, something like the final program, which you write even today. If you were to make a faithful movie of this, it would be mind-blowing and probably controversial, even in 2021. And there was a film made of it in the 1970s, which I have two DVD copies of. So I'm going to post you one for you to watch at some point, and then we're going to come back together if you're up for it and uh, and do a little well, uh, pat- patron extra and talk about the, the movie interpretation of this book. I'm going to have to find a, a, a DVD player. Uh, so, um, I do have I, I do have an external USB one around somewhere. Well, actually, um, I could probably rip it. <laughs> I could probably rip it and Dropbox it to you. That probably um, be easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I think I've still got DivX on my computer or something like that. God, remember that? Remember the days yeah, of DivX? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I, I could probably do that. I could probably rip it as an MPEG and pop it in, pop it in Dropbox. Yeah. Um, because that film does its game best to do something with this story and it does a lot wrong but it does some things right but inevitably it is very very toned down most of the stuff that's in this book that would have outraged mary whitehouse in the 60s or 70s or whatever is um, is is not kept intact in the film and is is very very severely toned down but nevertheless I, I enjoy it for what it is, and it is still the only Michael Moorcock adaptation committed to film. You got to love it for what it is. Yeah, I, I think I think one of the things I think would be um, prudent to cover. I think you received an email or something, didn't you? Um, I think it's probably worth yeah, yeah. just as kind of like just talking about that. I think as well. Yeah. One of the reasons why I'm thinking that is that as we were just talking, just wrapping up earlier about just being able to kind of talk about these things in a kind of almost. In, in a safe environment, really, mm. it felt like to me that there was a nice segue into to to this topic as well. Did you do you have the the email at hand at all? What it was was um it was it was uh, a listener contacted us to say that whilst the the really loved the the podcast and the discussion, it was just the fact that we used the term transgenderism 
and they felt that um, transgenderism was being used as, as as a negative term with negative connotations, which I think is absolutely fair. When when you're not invested in in a, a community in terms of being part of it or even being tangentially involved in it, I think it's often easy to to lose the context around how language is being used and how language makes people feel. And I think that was an absolutely fair thing to raise. Uh, and and I, I I agree. I think what one of the values that we both have, and over the years we've talked about, you know, subjects that might be controversial, etc. You know, but we kind of always approach them with respect. And you know, for for my part, you know, I'd, I'd also like to apologise if if there was any impression given that 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 we might have not done that um, justice in in that in, in the way that we we should have done. But on 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 this topic, I think this is something that I, um I, you know I reflect on a lot, and um and from 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 my perspective, you know, if we, this this thing about when we're talking about things, there is a responsibility that in, should be underpinned by intent as what you're trying to actually do and achieve by that. Um, there are those that talk about these subjects as a means to gaslight. On the mm. other side of the spectrum, there's this council culture, which doesn't allow us to kind of really discuss topics, which, um, you know, there, there may be valid reasons for kind of talking about them but for me, the most important thing in, in this is to be able to discuss sensitive topics in a bit to learn and grow. And I think as I was kind of reflecting on, on, on some of that, I hope that through podcasts like this, that we're able, where, where there are kind of like, you know, sensitive topics, that we're able to 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 um, approach them and talk about today's world in terms of being a Muslim and, and uh, surrounded by Islamic Islamophobic tropes. Um, mm. So I understand from slightly different angle as to why these kind of, when there are sensitive topics, um, how people might feel about them. But I see a world that cannot grow if um, people cannot have that space to probe in a bit to understand better. And, and in the end, I don't expect everyone to uh, agree with each other's viewpoints. You know, that's, that's not what it's about. But I hope that people can at least attempt to understand and respect each other's views as to where mm. we kind of get to. So, for example, you know, we might be in, in the Muslim world, we might talk about the subject of, say, for example, halal slaughter, as an example, mm-hmm. you know, which, you know, can be repulsive to some people. But rather than say that, you know, we can't talk as a Muslim, you know, if I say, well, we can't talk about these things, you know, we can't, you, you just can't say these things because you kind of be perhaps be regarded as racist or Islamophobic, etc. I'm sure there are many people who kind of want to approach this topic genuinely wanting to understand better as to why yeah. people kind of do these things. And um, and I think by doing that, you know, it almost also um, helps people who might not have thought about why they're doing it themselves as to the reasons why they're doing it, you know. So, um, and, I, and I've taken this journey over the, t- you know, last 20 odd years of, you know, pe- people have questioned certain things and I've kind of gone back and reflected on it and I've actually changed some of my ways and some of my thinking. But it wouldn't have happened, um, you know, if... We were in this world where people just kind of said, "You can't talk about that," you know. It's or mm. it's insensitive to say that, you know. So, um, I, 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 it's just something I, I guess I just wanted to kind of just really um, just say that, you know. I hope that we we can continue to just kind of delve into places um, where mm. you know, hand on heart, there's never an intent to disrespect anyone. Um, but rather just a space to be able to grow and 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 learn and you know and, and you know where there's criticism that's that's valid. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I think I've always taken a, a quite naive approach to things where I've always thought 
the key to things is just not to be a prick about it. So I try really, really hard not to be a prick about things. and um, But that's not enough. <laughs> that's not enough. But I think it's absolutely fair if someone challenges us on any discussion that we have and any language that we use. And the great thing about the challenge that we got was in no way critical of us or our take or our opinion on anything. Actually, it was from someone who was a great lover of the book and actually who found the book a massive comfort and source of um, inspiration as they went along their journey towards you know transition and how they felt about their own gender. I think it was just they wanted to let us know. The way in which we used a certain term may be problematic for other people, and that was great because yeah. you know we've learned from that. And, and, I, and I think from it. It for, for me, having those kind of challenges back uh, you know i will i'll go back and i'll kind of reflect on on that but in uh, you know in a in a way which is as i said it's it's there's there's something about where, when people shut down conversations versus when people kind of say well you know is 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 this right to be able to actually say this and and then it's a it's a question of kind of where you know we've had this kind of conversation didn't we with recently with um i can't remember what it was about yeah it was it was when starmer got challenged on um, a Sunday morning program with a gotcha question yeah. and and his response. And, and, and immediately we, we kind of both kind of said, oh, well, actually the, the correct response would have been this. And then a few minutes later, kind of I was thinking, actually, that probably wouldn't have worked either. Yeah, you know? actually, over the course of the conversation, yeah. Yeah. just us discussing it between ourselves made me realise actually my instant reaction to it was actually my take on it was was not correct yeah and we had to have that conversation for us to to come to those conclusions Absolutely. i'm still not sure i got to the right answer i don't think i don't think sometimes it, but, there isn't but, and this is why i say that yeah. it's it's about i think underpinning all of this is intent i think you know and um for, for some people where the you know they their approach to any subject is to actually just kind of gaslight people and kind of like you you know leave people um in in in, in a i suppose in, in a space where they um feel aggrieved you know that that's that 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 doesn't help anyone you know but at the same time you know just having those kind of conversations like between you and I we come to a realization that actually this is a lot more complicated and a lot more nuanced than we might have first thought yeah and and you're right and it's it's just about knowing that you can always do better yeah you know you can always learn and you can always do a little bit better we we, we said that before winning that in the yeah. twenty odd years that you know, uh, since you were, you know, the, the the young person who kind of thinks that you know the world when you're kind of like, you know, in mm. your early, uh, sorry, in your late teens, and you start kind of like figuring the world out, to yeah. to where you are now, you know, if you haven't changed your view of the world in all that time, then you know you've never progressed, never, never, you've never really learned anything, and mm. um, I think that that's what it's about, and that's one of the things I actually really enjoyed about this book. You know, I really did enjoy that. There are a number of points where I kind of, you know, it made me ponder about things, you know. Um, that's part of any good book, I think, is to when, when it enables you to kind of like just, you know, pause and reflect and consider your, your own kind of viewpoints on things. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think that's uh, that's a good point at which to, to leave it. Thanks for coming back to Derry and Tom's to finish phase three, stroke four of the final programme. And I will give you due warning now that not only will I divex the the movie for you and ping it over so we can get back together in a week or two and discuss that, but also when it comes to the sequels, which aren't really sequels, when it comes to the other Jerry Cornelius novels, the core novels, the final programme is probably the most conventional <laughs> in terms of structure. So well, 
So fair warning. <laughs> I, th- I think if you've given me the best, the one that I've got to love of all the Morcock novels first, if it's all downhill from here, you know, I apologise, yeah. Mr. Morcock, if you haven't listened, you know, but if I'm going to be end up berating the rest of them, it, it, it's your fault. It will be really interesting to see your take on it because a couple of the uh, the guys who were patrons uh, read it recently and posted on the Discord. One of them said, well, dot, 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 that was a book. <laughs> <laughs> so, so prepare. But you never know. We might surprise ourselves. So, well, all, all, all we do know is it'll be interesting. Yeah. Well, as I said, uh, hopefully I won't have to read it five times um, as I've probably had to do with this one. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, um, what what we can do is once once we've read it, we'll we'll get our heads together and have a conversation about it because we might do it in a slightly different way. We might we might just talk about it in one go. Let's just, let's see, let's see what we decide. Absolutely not. To be honest, uh, I, said, I, I I am kind of probably being uh, a little bit facetious with the thing. I said I I didn't actually mind reading it uh, a number of times. It's not no. like it was, um, uh, you know, it's, as you said before, it's not a hard read and. Um, and each time you do actually read it, you do pick up on things that you didn't do in the first instance. And, um, you know, that's a testament to uh, Moorcock's writing, I think. Well, in your favour, at least it wasn't Danus and the Dark Straits of Reglathium. So that's all I'll say. Oh. So thank you very much for joining me, and uh, we'll see you again next time. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> Massive thanks to Hussein, not only for coming back, but also for being so thoughtful and reflective as always. And also for committing to doing some more. Not bad for a guy who doesn't do sci-fi or fantasy. In other news, chapter 13 of the journal is written, and I'm proofing and rewriting it ahead of assembling volume 2. Print copies will be on their way later in the year for patron demons, and PDF copies for all patrons will be available just a little bit sooner. Just one more volume after that, and somehow I've accidentally written a short genre novel. Never really saw that coming. And once complete, maybe I can con Tash into covering it as a one-shit book. Meanwhile, as I've been slack on re-recording the audio version of the journal, Wayne, aka Nan Soundtracks, isn't letting any grass grow, and he's banged out a track for volume two of his electro-opus inspired by the journal, entitled Gallery of the Lost. And that'll play us out, so stay tuned. I also posted a few days ago, due to the delay in getting this show up, Phil pulled out another name from the hat, and another duplicate copy of a Moorcock classic is headed out to a patron. And this time, it's the New English Library edition of The Warhound and the World's Pain, and that's on its way to Randall Gatlin. And Randall, confession, I still have that beer you bought me. It's been waiting on laws, and yet again, our plans went pear-shaped a couple of weeks back, so the time has come where I think I have to reveal the magic. It can't wait any longer. So, Randall bought me... A stay puffed imperial honey glazed ham marshmallow porter, weighing in at a semi whopping 9% alcohol, could be the reason Loz is avoiding his next show, but its time will come, and so will his. Final bit of news for now is regarding the Halloween show. The post is still up on Patreon, and I'll leave it for another week or so, but the wildcard, Night of the Crabs, looks to have taken prime position and perhaps an unassailable lead ahead of the fog. Both of them leaving the Devils of D Day the Boats of the Glen Carrig, and Arthur Macon's Tales of the Supernatural Volume 2 floundering in their wake. But now, we've been going long enough. It's time to thank our patrons, and I'm going to start with our tearless champions, as always, Tim Cardos, 
Sebastian Weetabix and Anthony Paconti. And of course, our KS engineers, Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Ben Fletcher, Dave Washman, Fred Keish, Jim Kirkland, John Lays, John Timothy Watt, Mal Pertwee, Matt Saltz, Nelbert, Simon Perrins, Robbo, Tony Malazzo, and, new to the decks, comes Jules Lawrence. After I dropped Jules a line to say thanks, he dropped me a line to say, Any time, sir. I look on it as buying you a beer for keeping me engaged on my long and tiresome drive to work and back. As for my initial experiences of Mocock's work, I think it was actually from becoming obsessed with Rodney Matthews posters in a head shop in Leeds when I was a kid, closely followed by tabletop RPGs and Hawkwind. I was introduced to the latter by my schoolmate and, back then, fellow RPG player, Charlie Stross, the Laundry Files guy, a crazily creative force of nature. I recently reread chunks of Elric, only to be a bit baffled by the timeline. Tried Hawkmoon too, but that didn't seem to have aged as well, so I think I'll stick with Elric and Fritz Leiber. Farfer than the Grey Mouser are still hugely entertaining. By the way, a question for you. I think I fostered my Bandcamp page on you a while ago. I'm an obsessive musical tinkerer, but more a sideman than a centre stage guy. I've been recently going through a Hawkwind and Here and Now revival and thinking I'd like to give Space Rock Project a go. Thought you may know where, online, Space Rockers might hang out. Are there any forums for this kind of stuff? Anywho, enough of my waffling. Keep up the good work and send my regards to Yorkshire. Lived in Leeds and York when I was a kid, and yes, I've played the Hull Adelphi. Thanks for that, Jules. And uh, we do have some space rockers on uh, on Team Ruins. And hop on our Discord and catch up with Dave and a couple of other folks and get that conversation going. And you can find the musical jewels at Mr. Wilson Lawrence's Cabinet of Curiosities.bandcamp.com. And there are even a couple of tracks over on Breakfast in the Ruins Radio. Next up, thank you to our crafty Jugaderos Alexander Harris, Craig Ledley, Graham Holden, Ian Stead, Loz. Taylor, Stephen Round, Asako So, Miles Riedelbato, and Tom Murphy, and to our mighty patron demons, Andrew Clark, Ed Scott, Gareth Wilson, Paul Hillary, Mortmain, Neil Burton, Norman Beresford, Randall Gatlin, Joe Monty, Will Jameson, and Robert Macmillan. And just a quick word to say, good luck Norman, we're with you all the way. Finally, we do have a new patron demon, and that is Liam Jones, a.k.a. Liam Bones, a.k.a. Hambones. Liam is an actor, illustrator, writer, and broadcaster. Thanks for joining Team Ruins, Liam, and I hope you enjoy the copy of the journal I pinged over to you. That was the last of the print versions of Volume 1. May do another print run at some point in the future. I don't know. We'll wait and see. Anyway, enough of my yakking. This has been a long one. And, trust me, it could well have been longer. Hussein and I went almost three hours, but tech issues pissed on our audio chips a couple of times, so we lost some precious gold along the way. But, until next time, you can gab with us and follow us on Twitter and Instagram on the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email the show at breakfastruinsoutlook.com. The blog is breakfastintheruins.com. We have our Patreon page too, with a few Patreon exclusives. But do stay tuned for the Gallery of the Lost by Nan Soundtracks after the transition, and check out the Bandcamp page. I'll link it in the show notes. But meanwhile, take care, stay safe, and I'll see you again soon on the Moonbeam Roads.